Let's have a word of prayer together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your blessings. We thank you for the Thanksgiving season we've just come through and that you brought us back together to study your word. We ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit that you will give us your thoughts and may we dwell upon the precious promises that are before us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to remind you that tonight we're on chapter 20. We've got two more chapters to go in the book of Revelation. And I understand that after that, you've got another program that's coming the following week. So we will be done by the 15th, one way or the other. Okay? And I do hope that you'll come back again when we do the Gospel in Ruth seminar. That's a one-day seminar. It'll be done on a Sabbath afternoon and uh, in February. And then after that, we're going to start the amazing book of Daniel. Because there are those who, usually I have Daniel before Revelation, but we kind of flip-flopped it this time. Tonight, as we review 19, we find that John speaks about a great voice from heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. And then he declares true and righteous are the judgments of God against the great whore of Babylon, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand, causing heaven to say, Alleluia, and the smoke of her destruction rose forever. Then it speaks about the four and twenty elders, the twenty-four elders around the throne, They fell down and they worshipped God. And they said also, Amen and Alleluia. In plain words, all heaven was rejoicing at the destruction of the great harlot of Babylon. As we look further, it says, A voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants. And ye that fear him, both small and great, And there was the voice of a great multitude as the voice of of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And all of heaven, all of creation is saying, Alleluia. They are glad that this is behind us. Then it starts talking about the marriage of the Lamb. That is shown. And it In Revelation 19, it talks about his wife, who had made herself ready, was prepared for this great marriage feast. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. And of course, the garment represents the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness he gives to us. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Not that they have saints, but righteousness has been given to them because they have sought to live in harmony with his will. And he said to John, Write, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. It says, John fell at the 
angel's feet to worship him. And he said, See you do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so here we find that an angel of heaven refuses to accept worship when John fell before him because created beings are not worthy to receive worship. And so he also says that he had the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What the prophets have said in the past, what God has used prophets of modern time to say of him too. And by the way, God is an equal opportunity employer. Some of the prophets were male, some of the prophets were female. Prophetesses were female. And so God does not discriminate by gender. And John saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judged and made war. Faithful and true. Those are names that are used to represent Jesus. He's the faithful and true witness. And we find that he's the one that's riding on the white horse. Whether this is a literal horse, we'll have to wait and find out. It's generally accepted that this is a figurative horse. It was probably an angel. Remember um, Elijah, he was taken to heaven in a chariot pulled by horses. And the scriptures said that they were angels that took him. And so angels can change forms. They can even come in the form of human beings. And we find that to be the case when um, Abraham was met by the Lord when he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, you recall, and he entertained not only the Lord, but also a couple of angels, and they looked like men. And so we find that here, that's very possible. Notice it says, his eyes were as the flame of fire. That represents his divinity shining through. And on his head were many crowns. And the word crowns here is diadem. A diadems are a series of crowns, multiple crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. Now, that's important because the Bible is called the Word of God. It's the transcript of God's character and his will and his plan. But Jesus is also called the Word of God. A picture is worth a thousand words, and because they misinterpreted the thousand words that were in the scripture. God sent the thousand words in a form of a human being, Jesus. And so Jesus was the living representative of the Father. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. What does the scripture call the Bible? God's word, right? His sword. And so we find that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now, a rod of iron is a scepter, indicating a king. 
In plain words, he's the one in authority. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Almighty God is the word El Shaddai. And he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not only is it on his garment, but it's on his thigh that this written is written. He is above all gods and all kings. John saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together for the supper of the great God. Now notice there are two, two suppers that are mentioned in chapter 19. The first one is the marriage supper. That's for the righteous to enjoy the fellowship and meal with God. But this, this is called the Feast of the Birds. And he calls the vultures and the scavenger birds to come and pick at the flesh of the wicked who are slain at the coming of Christ. And notice what else it says. That the vultures might eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. It doesn't matter your status. You could be a king, you could be a pauper. If you are on the side of the wicked, you are a guest at the meal of the vultures. Matter of fact, you're the guest of honor at the meal of the vultures. Okay? Look at what else. It also says that John saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies um, met together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. Now, the beast, that's referring to the power that came out of the seas or the people. The false prophet is that land beast that came up and uh, caused that all men should worship the first beast. And notice, it says, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast and then that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into the lake of fire with brimstone. So we find here that the beast and his image, if this is true and the mark of the beast has not yet fallen, this must be talking beyond the second coming of Christ. This must be looking forward to the end of the thousand years when Christ comes back to destroy the wicked, that this is done. And notice that the beast and the false prophet are cast into this lake of fire, the fire that burns forever. I mentioned to you in the past that there are different words for hell that are mentioned in the Bible. The first one, Sheol, in the Old Testament, it means the place of the dead. In plain words, the grave. The counterpart of that in the New Testament is Hades. It means the place of the dead or the grave. Those are not hot. Unless you're in a volcano or something. They're not hot. 
Then Peter alone uses one other word. That is the word Tartarus. The devil, when he was cast away from the presence of God, he was cast to Tartarus. And he, he translates that as outer darkness, eternal separation from God. That is hell. So those three words are hell. But there's a fourth word for hell. It's the only hot hell. And that is Gehenna. Gehenna means the garbage dump in the valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem. This is where they burned up the garbage. This is where they burned up the idols. This is where they burned the carcasses of the social misfits, the criminals, any man who died on a tree, you see. His body would have been thrown there and he would have been burned. That would have been the fate of Jesus had it not been for Joseph of Arimathea giving him his tomb because they considered him uh, a criminal and they wanted to get rid of him. So we find here, that's the only hot fire that we find. And notice, and, and down here, it says that it was a lake of fire burning with brimstone. We're going to talk about that tonight, that lake of fire and where it's located. The question is, is the hellfire burning today? No, it is not. Because the Gehenna fire, as we just mentioned, it comes at the end of the world. The end has not yet come. So even if even if tonight were the end of the world, it would not, and Jesus would have come back and take the righteous to be with him in heaven, the hellfire would not burn for another thousand years plus a little season beyond that. So even if tonight were the last day on earth, you still have to wait a thousand years before that hellfire fell, you see. And so notice it says, with fire and brimstone. Brimstone has a lot of sulfur in it. And sulfur, once it gets burning, it, it just burns uh, thoroughly. And notice it says, And the wicked remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So, if the wicked remnant are slain and they are going to be destroyed also in this hellfire, hell cannot be burning right now or there's no wicked people alive on earth, right? They'd all be burning. Well, I don't know if you've listened to the news lately, but it sounds like wickedness is still quite healthy in the world. So, apparently... If there are still wicked people working in the earth, that hellfire has not yet fallen. And so that's a quick review of chapter 19. Now, when we get into chapter 20, what we're doing is we're looking beyond the, the beast of Revelation. We're looking at the final demise of Satan. Don't forget, he's the rascal that caused all this trouble. And it's hard to believe that all this trouble started in heaven. You would think that heaven is a perfect place. It's, it's a 
place of, of splendor. How could it be that sin started up there and was transported down here? This is what he's going to be dealing with. Because don't forget, Satan was cast out to outer darkness. The farthest he could get from the presence of God. Because to be in the presence of God, my God is a consuming fire to the wicked. So it's actually an act of love and mercy that God gave him that long space in between. Or else he would have been consumed. And so would the wicked. But his day of reckoning is coming. The, the wicked human beings have already been judged. The holy temple in the heavenly city is now closed. The work there is over. Jesus is no longer the high priest. He's coming back now as the king of kings and lord of lords. What is he doing? We have moved into the time of what the Bible calls, well, the Bible doesn't use the term, but it refers, it's referred to as the executive judgment. You see, before Jesus came back, that was the investigative judgment. Think about the procedures of a court. They investigate, they have a trial, and then you still have a chance to have a court of appeals until you get down to the execution. And once the penalty has been executed, there's no more appeal after that. So we're moving to this time. And we see here in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the keys of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. Now, I don't think this is a chain that we're familiar with. Because I'm sure a chain of iron couldn't hold a spirit. And the devil is a spirit. Remember Peter when he was in prison? He had a guard on one side and a guard on the other side. And he had chains shackling him to the guards. And what happened? The guards said, Peter, stand up. And as Peter went to stand up, puff, the shackles fell off of him. And he walks over to the door, and the, the gates open before him. You see, an ordinary prison couldn't hold the devil. He's a spirit. So, is this literal language or figurative? Now, it also mentions the bottomless pit. Now, the same uh, words that are used for bottomless pit are the same words that are used in the Old Testament to refer to the earth before it was created, when it says it was null and void. In plain words, when Jesus comes back again the first time, it's such a traumatic event. We find that there's a great earthquake that splits everything open, and buildings fall down, and there's fires and all kinds of things. The earth is not a pleasant place to live. I've realized that there are people who are saying that Christ is going to set up his kingdom on the earth when he comes back again. I doubt it. Because the earth is not going to be a pleasant place to be. You see. And it says that it will be in darkness. On the earth at that time. I had a fellow who told me. Well we're already in the millennium. There are different philosophies about the millennium. First off the word millennium is not used in the Bible. The Bible does not speak of the word millennium. 
It's an old English word. Actually, it comes from the Latin. Mille means thousand. Annum means years. The Bible talks about the thousand years, but we have used the Latin terminology, the millennium. Now, the interesting part of this is there are some who feel that there is no millennium. No such thing as a millennium. Well, there are those who feel that we're already in the millennium. If we are in the millennium, then Satan must be bound. And if Satan, because he's bound at the beginning of the thousand years, right? All right, if Satan is already bound, who's causing all this trouble? You see, it doesn't make sense. Then there are those who believe that Jesus will become at the beginning of the thousand years. Seventh-day Adventists are one of them. There are others, they are called premillennialists. Then there are those who are postmillennialists. They say, well, we'll go through a thousand years of peace, and then Jesus will come. You see, the Bible supports premillennialism. And it's interesting that most of your rapture people are also premillennialists, but they have a different concept as to what happens uh, during the, uh, the time before Jesus comes. So anyway, those are a few terms that are used. But the word, he had the keys to the bottomless pit. What is this? This is the prison house. Satan, remember I said, was cast down three different times. First off, he was cast down from heaven. Actually, he was cast out of heaven. That's his first downfall. But when he gained control of the earth, he still had access to the United Nations meetings for those who represented different uh, parts of the universe. That's where the book of Job comes in, where he says, God says, where'd you come from? Walking to and fro on the earth. I can go anywhere I please. I'm the boss. But at the cross, Jesus bought back the planet from him. Not just the people, the planet too. So no longer is Satan representative of planet Earth. Jesus is. And so now Satan is being cast down the third time. He can't he can't get off of planet Earth. He's bound here by a chain of circumstances. What are the circumstances? What is Satan's full-time job? It's tempting people, right? At the second coming of Jesus, the righteous who have died believing in Christ are resurrected. Meet him in the air. You who are alive to see Jesus come, you're changed in the snap of a finger or the twinkling of an eye, it says. And you rise up to meet the Lord in the air. And we all go back to the Father's house for the wedding feast. We talked about that last time. So who's left? Well, the wicked living at the coming of Christ, they're slain by the brightness of his coming. They fall dead. What about the wicked who have been dead for centuries? They stay dead. So, who is he going to tempt? He doesn't have to worry about tempting the other fallen angels. They've already fallen. He can't tempt a rock. 
The birds, I imagine, after they pick people clean, they probably die. Stomach ache or what? I don't know. But they are destroyed. So he's out of business. And he walks to and fro in the dark, desolate earth. Hopefully, thinking about all the trouble that he has caused. Going from being the most beautiful angel, the most powerful angel in heaven, the one who was the choir director of the heavenly choir. We have reason to believe that he could sing four-part harmony. He, we know he's a master musician. And now he's walking around in a graveyard. Nobody, nobody to tempt. That in itself would be hell for him. To be out of business. And look what it says in verse 2. Speaking of this angel, it doesn't give the name of the angel who grabs a hold of him. But it says, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So he binds him, not with a chain as we know it, but a chain of circumstances. And so a thousand years, we have reason to believe that that thousand years is a literal period of time. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, that's the earth, and he shut him up, and he set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Now, that's interesting, because here he is roaming up and down through the earth, for a thousand years. Talk about boredom. And it says he should deceive the nations no more. Why? The buildings are all down. The kings and soldiers are all dead. Who's he going to tempt? Then it says, until the end of the thousand years. And then look what happens. At the end of the thousand years, he would be loosed. In plain words, no longer is he out of business. He'd be back in business. What's his business? Tempting. Who's he going to tempt? Can't be the righteous. They're with Christ. Then who is it? It must be the wicked who are raised. You see, the last thing they saw before they died was Christ coming in the clouds. And they were trying to get away from him and out of his presence. But now they wake up and they say, oh, whoa, I'm sleepy. Whoa, what's going on? And the first thing they see is Satan. And he says, I'm the one that resurrected you. I defeated Christ. I'm the one that brought you back. I've been victorious over him. And he says, look, how many are on our side? And of course, Christ and the saints came down with the holy city and he points and he says, look, see that city down there? There's more of us than there are of them. Come on, guys, we can take it. What's he doing? He's deceiving them into believing that they can still conquer. Because what's in that holy city? In the holy city is the tree of life. You remember Adam and Eve when they were kicked out of the garden? God had to station angels around the entrance of the garden with fiery swords. 
Because if Adam and Eve snuck in the back door to the garden and ate of the fruit of the tree, sin would have been forever. They would have been immortal sinners. And so he kept them from that tree of life. We have reason to believe that the tree of life is in that holy city. We see it later on, and we'll get to that in the next couple of chapters. But notice, it says he's released for a little season. How long that little season is, I don't know. Some have speculated it could be as much as 100 years. It could be shorter than that. But it's long enough for him to rally his forces, get all his ammunition, get whatever vehicles he's going to use to try to take that holy city. And then, notice what it says in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. That should be the saints reigning during that thousand years. And judgment was given unto them. Now notice, we've turned our attention from looking at Satan down here. We're now looking in heaven. Why? Because not much is going on on the earth during that thousand years, right? The thousand years begins with the coming of Christ. It begins with the righteous being removed from the earth and the wicked being slain. But there's not much going on in the earth during that time. The Bible does say that the earth trembles. In plain words, they'll probably be having earthquakes going on during that time period as well. And it's dark. Apparently, the sun isn't able to get through. And it says here, Now our focus is drawn to where something is going on during that time period. We're looking up into heaven. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Unto whom? Unto the righteous. The righteous have a part in the judgment. They don't want the wicked to suffer any longer than they have to. You want to make sure that if your dear favorite Aunt Matilda didn't make it, you sure don't want her to have to suffer any second longer than she has to. And so they are actually having a part in reviewing the books. This is the Court of Appeal. Like I mentioned before, there's always some dear-hearted person who says, oh, if you'd only give them a second chance, maybe, maybe they've changed during that time. You don't want your Aunt Matilda to suffer long. You, and neither does God. He wants this whole sin thing done with. He wants to get it behind him. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. These people were martyrs. They were witnessing for Jesus. They were living for Jesus and for the word of God. They were standing for the truth, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So where are they? This must be after the mark of the beast has fallen, which takes place before the second coming of Christ. They overcame the beast and his mark. And in their foreheads, they have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And in their hands, their works. They are the ones who live and reign with Christ. Now, it tells us in the book of Hebrews that human beings 
were created a little below the angels. I mean, let's face it. Angels are smarter than we are. They're stronger than we are. They're faster than we are. They can live forever. You know, they're swift in the way they get from one place to another. They don't disease and die like we do. So they were created above us. But what does Jesus do? He takes and he flips it around. And he puts the redeemed above the angels. We are going to be able to boss around the angels. And they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. God already knows what the results will be. Who's really on trial? God is. God is really on trial. Because the devil has said that God is arbitrary, that God is a fixed opinion, that God creates us as little robots, and as a result, God is unfair and unjust. Well, so that those charges don't arise again in the future, we have to have the opportunity to examine the books. And as we examine the books, we say, hey, guess what, God? In our independent survey, our independent investigation came up with the same conclusions you did. You just got there first, you see. And so what is this? This is actually a court of appeals. Not only that, too. We're not just talking about Aunt Matilda. We're talking about the angels. Because these evil angels have caused so much trouble. We have the opportunity to judge the arch deceiver who got us into all this trouble. And caused all this pain to be upon us. And what will be his fair and just reward? And look what it says in verse 5. But the rest of the dead. Now these are the ones that didn't go with Jesus. Okay. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And then that word says this is the first resurrection. It's really referring to the verse before. It's parenthetical. It. He was talking about those that are in heaven. They were there as a result of the first resurrection. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's a second resurrection that's going to be coming too. So that last line actually goes with the fourth verse. Now, what happens? Verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. This is the resurrection of the righteous. This is the joyous resurrection. Why? Because on... Such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The 144,000 will be the royal court that goes with Jesus wherever he goes. Now notice also it says on here that over such the second death would have no power. Why? Because it was on the cross. Not only did Jesus die the first time on the cross, the physical death, that's when his body died, but Jesus, when he was on the cross, that mental anguish that he took on in the Garden of Gethsemane, that mental anguish really begins with the Garden of Gethsemane. Long before he reaches the cross, there he says, 
I don't want to die. I don't like thorns. I don't like spears stuck in my side. I don't like crosses. But Lord, your will, not my will, be done. That's why he was dropping, uh, sweating great drops of blood. It's because he knew what was coming. And his humanity was struggling against his divinity. And he said, Lord, I choose to go with the divine. What Jesus was doing, he was paying the price of the second death. When he looked up and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First time in all eternity that the Trinity was fractured. That divinity was fractured. He had always been with his father. But now it says Jesus became sin. He took on the sin of the world. And because of that, his father could not be in his presence. If his father were in his presence, he would have been burned up on the cross. So what does the father do? He draws back and he puts clouds between them. And what was Jesus feeling? He was feeling the eternal separation from the Father. If he failed, not only would humans be lost, but the unity of the divinity would have been been fractured forever. There was a lot at risk, a lot at stake when Jesus was crucified. But he remained faithful to the death. Satan tried to get him off that cross, remember. Come on down. You saved everybody else. Now save yourself. Taunting him. Trying to get him to come down. But when Jesus went into that grave, that's the worst thing the devil could do. Because now he had paid the price. He had experienced that eternal separation that is represented in the second death so that you wouldn't have to experience that eternal separation, that tartarous experience of being out of the presence of God forever. Jesus paid that second death. And when he came out of that grave, the devil says, oh dear, what will I do? I'll have to get a whole battalion of Roman soldiers to sit on that stone so that they can't get him out. What happens when an angel comes down and goes, poof, they all fall as though they're dead. Rolls the stone away and out comes Jesus. It shows that if he could break the strongest weapon that the devil had, which was the grave and death, he was the down payment for you and me. Because he will break the grave for you and me too. That we might have eternal life. This all was in the weight of the balance here. And this is the reason why We can, the angels cannot sing the song to the redeemed because they've never experienced what it's like to be lost and redeemed and bought back again. They are either saved or lost. No second chance with them, you see. And so what happens next? Satan is released and leads the rebellion. This is the answer to what you asked me a few minutes ago. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. All right, his prison is the desolate earth. But now it's not desolate anymore. 
All the wicked start popping up from the graves. Right? And he's now back in business deceiving people. The question is, if there's anybody, well, I think when they did their own investigation of the books, I think they've come to the conclusion the devil's not likely to repent. But so that sin won't arise a second time, we'll take it after the Court of Appeals and see if he has changed. Well, has he changed? It says at the end of the thousand years, when he's finally loosed for a little season, he goes back to the same old modus operandi. He goes back to the old plan, his criminal behavior, which shows that he has not changed in the least. And the whole universe, whatever beings there may be on other planets, they also have a vested interest in what's happening here. They see that the devil has not changed. And all sympathy, if there was any more sympathy for him, is now gone. Verse 8, And he shall go and deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth. This is a worldwide deception. Because there's people in China and, and Japan and South America and elsewhere who fall dead at his coming. But notice, it says, the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now, Gog and Magog, some people want to make these uh, political units. They want to make it Russia and Ukraine and so forth. And I'm sure the devil will try to deceive people in the last days, trying to use some of these powers. But this is really referring to more than that. This is talking about a spiritual conflict. You know what the battle of Gog and Magog is? The battle of Armageddon is when the wicked are trying to kill the people of God. Remember? They're trying to kill the people of God. They think they're about to succeed. And what happens? They look up and Christ comes. And it stops everything right there. So what happens with the battle of Gog and Magog? They pick up from where they left off before. Now they say, ah, there they are. They're bottled up in that city. Let's go kill them and take the city. In plain words, it's the same murderous instinct that they had before that just had a thousand years lapse. Who knows? Maybe the devil's been planning this strategy during that time. Now, Gog is an ancient king that's mentioned in the Old Testament. Magog is uh, a nation of people who are mentioned in the Old Testament. They were enemies of God and his people. There are some who translate this or interpret this as meaning apostate religion and irreligion unite together to try to wipe out God's people. In plain words, it is Satan's universal coalition of the wicked. And they try, they gather them together for a final battle, the number as the sands of the sea. And what happens? As they surround the city, this is the one and only time in all of history that everyone who has ever lived 
is all alive at the same time. You are either inside the city or you're outside the city. Don't forget the walls are transparent. And you can look through that wall and there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, and all of the prophets of, that are mentioned in the Bible. There's, of course, Jesus. There's, there's Paul sitting over there in the corner. And then over here is John. And you are in the city. But as you turn around and you look through the, the other direction, if you're inside the city, you look out, you see Adolf Hitler, you see Napoleon, you see Charlemagne, you see Haman, and all the bad guys of the past. And they're all out there, eyeball to eyeball. First time in all human history. I don't care if they lived 3,000 years ago. You're seeing the ancient people. Why? Because this is the culmination of the great controversy. And look at verse 9. Notice it said, that speaking of the wicked, that they went up on the breadth of the earth and they compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now stop and think about this. Here they are. Here's the holy city. They surround the holy city ready to attack. And fire comes down from God out of heaven. So, where are they standing? The breath of the earth. That's the surface of the earth. Where is hell? Hell isn't way down there in the middle of the earth. And it's not burning now. I mean, I'm sure it's hot down there because of the pressure and gravity and everything. I'm sure there's molten rock down there as it comes out to a volcano. But that isn't the fire that's burning. That's not what this is talking about. It says on the breath of the earth, that's the surface of the earth, the hellfire comes down and burns them. It's the whole earth ignites. Why? Because the Gehenna fire is the fire that burns up the garbage dump. It burns up the garbagey angels. It burns up the air pollution. It, it burns up the, the rocks, the houses. Even your money is going to burn. Might as well use it for good purposes because it's going to burn anyway. Your new Mercedes is going to burn. You see, all this stuff is going to burn. And it burns up the garbagey people as well. This is the fire that cleanses. There's twice the Bible talks about the earth being cleansed. One, was it was cleansed in the time of Noah by water. And the second time is to be cleansed by fire. It's interesting that in the writings of Ellen White, she mentions that during the flood, Satan was scared for his own life. He he was scared to death because he didn't he wasn't sure which was going to come first, the fire or the flood, you know? But he was afraid because of all the violence that was going on 
He was afraid for his own being. Now you imagine he's, he's dodging rocks as they're being shot up in the air. You know? I don't want to get too literal with this because we're talking about spirit being. But still in all, he was scared for his very existence. Well, here he has reason to be scared for his existence because his existence will not be long. And it says that fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, what could this mean? If it were just lightning, some say, well, it's lightning coming down. Well, lightning's in our atmosphere. That could be the heaven that they're talking about. Some say, well, he's being hit by asteroids and comets. Well, if he could dodge the flood, the rocks that were being tossed around in the flood, I think he could probably dodge those. But what's another kind of fire he can't? My God is a consuming fire to the wicked. What if there is no veil between the created beings and the uncreated being? And God God turns up the amperage. He turns up the watts. He turns up the brightness of the lumens. And as they look, that fire consumes them. The answer is, I don't know what that heavenly fire is. I'm only speculating. But I have reason to believe because it says it came down from God out of heaven. It could very well be that Satan, who was separated by Tartarus from God's presence, now has nothing separating him. And he begins to burn. Now it says in verse 10 that Satan is tormented. Now that's interesting because especially in the King James, the New King James Bible, it refers to this. You'll find in some of the translations that the word tormented here means tested, examined. Uh, It means uh, he's exposed for what he's worth. That in itself If a person has done sinful things and all of a sudden their whole life history is being portrayed before the whole universe, everything they've done in secret, uh, don't you think that would be torment to them when they see what they've done? So whether or not it's the flames of the fire that's doing it or whether it's the mental anguish that comes upon them, We'll have to wait and see. Look at verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, it's very interesting. Tormented day and night. I think God wants to get this thing over as quick as possible. Cain killed one man would it be fair to burn him as long as you burn Adolf Hitler who killed six million people? You see? I'm wondering if Cain will be poof. He'll burn up in a short period of time. It may be that Adolf, he'll have to burn an hour and a half or whatever it takes to purge that sin that's within him. But who's the baddest dude of them all? Satan, right? 
And he's going to be burning for all the sins, not only his own, but don't forget, in that heavenly sanctuary, we brought our sins to Jesus. Jesus forgave our sins. They're behind us. What is the devil trying to do? He's trying to keep people from coming to Jesus and gaining forgiveness from him. Therefore, they have to burn for their own sins. And the devil also burns for the trouble he caused them or keeping them. I think it's very interesting that just recently in November, Pope Francis said that now Catholic priests can forgive people who committed an abortion. Before, you, you had to go through bishops to get any kind of forgiveness for that. And you could be excommunicated. And those penalties still apply. But now the Pope says that the local priest can forgive you for that. And that sounds very charitable. But the thing is, abortion is not the unpardonable sin. Neither is murder the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Right? Now, Jesus was accused of blasphemy because he, being a man, said he could forgive sins. That's why the Jews were going to stone him. So what is one of the definitions of blasphemy? It's saying that you can forgive sins, claiming powers that belong to God. You see, Jesus can forgive abortion. He can forgive murder. He can forgive all kinds of sins. If we will come to him, it's the Holy Spirit that brings us to him, right? But the Pope, being a human being, doesn't have the authority to forgive anybody's sins. And to lead a priest into believing that he has that delegated authority to forgive other people's sins is misleading the priest. And people who say, now I don't have to go to the bishop, I can go to the local priest. Isn't that a loving, kind act on the part of the Pope? No, it is not. It is still blasphemy because he is saying now that the priest has the authority to do what only God can do and what Jesus was accused of blasphemy for saying he could do. Because only God can do that. And if I claim that I can forgive your sins, then I'm saying that I'm divine. Ooh, that's dangerous territory. Now, if you stole my wallet, I could say, Ardeth, I forgive you. I don't hold it against you. But I'm not going to make you church treasurer. Would that be fair? I'm not going to hold it against her or anything like that, but I'm still not going to make her church treasurer. Right? If you've got sticky fingers, you need to overcome that. Right? So give me my wallet back. Okay? So we find here that the devil is deceiving people even today. 
And many of the tactics that took place years ago, he is still using today in different Christmas wrappings, different forms. And notice also that he will have to be the one who burns the longest. Now it says forever and ever. Now the word forever is an indefinite period of time. It means as long as life lasts. Now, Cain, if he burns up, poof, in 10 minutes, his forever was 10 minutes long. If Hitler's forever was an hour and a half, Satan's will be at least one day and one night before he is gone for good. The results of his burning are eternal, you see. And so a lot of people want to have the devil burning forever and ever in the hellfire. And do you ever notice that the devil is in charge of the hellfire? Right? In the common concept of hell. Stop and think. The devil still gets to live forever. I thought the penalty for sin was death. Yet he gets to live forever. Now, I mean, it's true that the surroundings aren't the most pleasant. But like the old saying goes, bad breath is better than no breath at all. Right? So the common concept, the popular concept of the devil burning in forever, he's not in charge of the hellfire. He's the chief log in the hellfire, you see. He's the Yule log that burns until it's gone. So who is the last one to die? The devil is the last one to die. And then death itself dies. The last thing to die is death. We're going to take another glimpse of what happens before the devil is consumed. We're going to go now to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, because verses 11 through 15 start talking about a great white throne judgment. Notice what it says here in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. The great white throne. Who is the one from whose face the earth and heavens fled away at his coming? It's Jesus, right? Even the atmosphere rolled back when he came. So Jesus is sitting on this great white throne. And he apparently is elevated. I'm assuming he's in the holy city or he's above the holy city. He may be floating in the air. But we do know from the scriptures that he appears to be above the holy city. Where he can be seen by everybody. Those in the city and those outside the city walls. They all see him. And as they look, they realize white is the sign of victory or purity. That he has conquered. He's the one that was on the white horse. He conquered. And what happens? They are forced to kneel. And even Satan himself is forced to kneel and say, you are righteous and holy, O Lord. Jesus, you have won, I have lost. Does that stop him? No, he still tries to regain his, his troops afterwards. 
but they've lost their heart. They've lost their will to pay attention to him. But it says, before Christ, every knee shall bow. It means the righteous knees and the unrighteous knees are forced to kneel and admit God wins, he loses. And there was no place for them, the wicked, to be found in that heavenly city. Why? Because their names are not written in the book of life. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. You know, on earth, we judge people according to the law, right? And here, heaven, should that be any less fair? There are records kept of our good deeds, our bad deeds, our thoughts, our words, our motives, our actions. There are records of this. And notice it says, and the dead, great or small, it doesn't matter what your social rank was, you will stand before God. Can't you imagine the wicked? Here they are, they're forced to kneel before Christ. And there, before their eyes, there's a cinematic replay of the plan of salvation. When I was a kid, I used to like to watch I Love Lucy on TV. And I used to like to watch Andy Griffith, you know, and Odie was still a little boy. I mean, Odie's almost bald now and getting old. And Andy Griffith is dead. Lucy's dead. But you know what? Somewhere in the United States, every night, you can still watch I Love Lucy or you can watch Andy Griffith. Because long after they're gone, the cinerama is still there. And here, these people who look before their eyes, the plan of salvation is shown. Their life experience is exposed and they see where they have either accepted Christ or they have rejected Christ. What do they do? They condemn themselves. They say, Lord, you gave me the opportunity and I didn't take it. Remember Pilate, when Jesus was before him, Jesus, of course, said that he was the truth, right? And when Pilate said to him, what is truth? The truth was standing right in front of him. And he turned from it. I think of, was it Agrippa? Or was it Felix? I can't remember. Who said uh, to Paul, you've almost, it was Agrippa, you, you will almost persuade me to become a Christian. Come back again and then I'll hear you another day. He let the plan of salvation slip right past him. The opportunity to be saved slipped right past him. My friend, so many people are letting opportunity for salvation slide right past them. Because like the rich young ruler, what must I do to be saved? The Lord told him, well, sell your stuff. Give your heart to the Lord and not to material things. Get rid of all this stuff you have and come follow me. And it says he turned around and he walked away, never to follow Jesus again. And Jesus wept. Jesus still loves the sinner. 
The question is, how much do they love him? And notice, it says that there was a book of their deeds. Now, we are saved by grace because of faith. But the scripture also says we are judged by our works because by their fruits you shall know them. Our works demonstrate the quality of faith that we have, whether it's true faith or put on, you see. With Judas, it was just a put on. And so we see here, it says, the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. This is just before the fire falls from heaven. Because the righteous, when they were in heaven, they got a chance to look at the books. They came to the conclusion that God was right. But the wicked didn't have that chance. They're down here on earth. Now, they see in this panorama their life history. And they condemn themselves. You know, it's been said that when you drown, anybody ever almost drown and your whole life goes before you? Anybody ever had that experience? I remember when I was a little kid, I went swimming in the waterworks. I didn't know it, but they had potholes there, and I didn't, you know, I didn't like to get my face wet. So, and my mother hated water. She was afraid of water. She was scared to death, and she was watching me. And I walked over, and boop, I went down in a hole. And I bobbed up two or three times before I kind of went down. And you know what? It's true. I was only about six. And I saw my whole life pass right before me. Of course, when you're six, it goes, and it's gone. You know? It's a blip. But I saw all everything I did, it seemed like, just passed right before me. And it almost seemed like it was in slow motion. And then... Someone came along, grabbed me by the hair, and pulled me up out of the water. But here you can see these people. They see their life pass before them. The Bible says every thought, every secret thought, every deed comes to the forefront. How many of you saw in the newspaper that the Saginaw County Sheriff, one of his divers for his diving team, he just admitted in court that 230 times over the last year or two, he was sending naked pictures of himself and getting naked pictures from a a 17-year-old girl. Well, at the time, she was 16 when it started. He's 46. And they were having sexting back and forth. Now, he's supposed to enforce the law. And here he is. You can imagine the embarrassment he and his family and even the department he worked for must experience when this whole thing is displayed. When you flip on CNN or Fox News or anything else you want, and there's your whole life history being played all over. Don't you think you'd be a little embarrassed? I can imagine they would be too. And so it says they were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. Your good works will be revealed, but so will the others. If you have not surrendered them to Jesus. If you have surrendered them to Jesus, 
that piece of the tape is cut out. Why? Because the blood of Jesus wipes away our sin so that we don't have to be embarrassed in the judgment. Man, I don't want anybody to say all my sins. And I, I want Jesus to cover my sins. Look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Now, there are a lot of people that are buried at sea. How many ships have gone down? They had good people and bad people on them. The sea gave up its dead. And death and hell, here this word is the grave, gave up or delivered the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. Once again, you see the faith-works relationship. And then 14. And death and hell, again, this is the grave, is speaking of. Death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. What is the second death? It's when death dies. It's when the grave dies because nobody will die anymore. After the wicked are consumed, they are burned up, root and branch, then there's no more need for the hellfire. And the flame goes out for lack of fuel. And we find that death itself will be the last thing to die. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so this is what the devil is trying to keep people from doing, getting their names written in that book of life. He is trying to keep people from confessing their sins to Jesus. Confess them to a man. Uh, hide it. Dis- uh, cover it over. Do whatever you can. But don't let them confess their sins to Jesus because Jesus will forgive them. And if Jesus forgives them, then the devil said, hey, I don't want to have to die for their, you know, for what I caused them to do. I want them to die for their own sins. And so we don't do a good job being our own lawyer in court. I want Jesus to be my lawyer in that heavenly court, don't you? And thus we come to the end of chapter 20. Next time we're going into chapter 21. And in chapter 20, after sin is behind us, after the devil is burned up, what then? What's the heavenly ever after going to be like? And that's what chapter 21 is going to be about. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll come into our hearts. Help us to accept Jesus as our personal Savior, to find forgiveness in our Lord Jesus that our names may be written in the book of life, that we will not have to fear nor be ashamed in that panorama that will be displayed before all the wicked. Father, help us to be inside that city and to be with Christ forever. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Okay, time for a quiz. Number one, an angel bound and sealed Satan with a chain for blank years in the blank blank. Okay? 
an angel bound and sealed Satan with a chain for blank years and the blank blank. Number two, when released, Satan blank the wicked for a little blank. Number three, the throne of God is revealed and blank from heaven, blank devours them. Number four, Satan and the blank blank are cast into a lake of blank for as long as blank lasts. Number five, the saints live and reign and sentence the wicked during the blank. Then the bonus, the word millennium means blank, blank. Y'all got it? Okay, I'm going to reveal the answers. Here we go. An angel bound and sealed Satan with a chain for a thousand years in the bottomless pit, or the desolate earth. When released, Satan deceives the wicked for a little season. Number three, the throne of God is revealed and fire from heaven devours them. Anyway, number four, Satan and the false prophet are cast into a lake of fire for as long as life lasts. And number five, the saints live and reign and sentence the wicked during the millennium. Number six, the word millennium simply means thousand years. Anybody get them all right? Your homework, read chapter 20 over again and check out whether or not what I'm telling you is consistent with what you're reading in the scripture. Then read chapter 21 and invite somebody. still not too late. We've still got two more meetings. Okay, until then, shalom. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for your many blessings. Dismiss us, Lord, with Christ in our hearts. Help us to go forth to live for you because we love you. Give us a safe journey home. In Jesus' name, amen.